Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, your weekly source of fintech news and analysis. I'm Simon Taylor, coming at you from Level 39 in London. And as you know, London is the heart of fintech. Brought to you by the fine, fine people at 11FS, the consultancy helping banks become truly digital. I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, David Breer, and also Asif Farouk, the head of content at Level 39, and Dan Roselli, the co-founder and managing director of QC Fintech. So on with the news. Okay, so we're here in the news. David, uh, you're with us as always. David, say hello for the listeners. Hello. Uh, Dan, say hello for everybody. Hello. And Asif, please say hello. Hello. Hey, good to have you with us. First story up this week is one in uh, Tech City News saying that investment in UK fintech startups has dropped by 33.7% in 2016 versus 2015. That is a gigantic drop. And of course, David, you spoke to uh, Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance, all about it. Fantastic. I am joined now by Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance. Lawrence, uh, you guys have just published a, a really interesting uh, report actually looking at the um, fintech investment landscape. Tell us a little bit more. It's the second year we've published uh, the global investment stats uh, in conjunction with our partner PitchBook. And I think the headline uh, is quite interesting, and that's China for the first year has overtaken uh, the U.S. in fintech venture capital. So we're excluding institutional capital as in institutional investment in accelerators and stuff. This is really deal flow. And part of Alipay uh, was the biggest VC round in history at about $4.5 billion which contributes to that. And you can argue whether that's a VC round or not, but it, it is technically, um, you know, technically considered one. It is an amazing round. 4.5 billion in one shot is just unheard of. Isn't well, it? Ant, uh, it was PayPal, I think, by definition, and now Ant has really taken it over. Ant is the, the largest fintech in the world. And again, David, you know, a fintech in China is big, mainly the demography, the number of uh, millennials using mobiles. Uh, the regulation or the lack of regulatory barriers that we have you know, here in America, and the inherent nature, the usability of social and the jobs that, that quite a bit of the app providers do. So uh, I think that justifies those numbers. And again, uh, our own interest in, in better cooperating with uh, the Chinese ecosystem, both in inbound capital, but in the technologies they, they have is something we'll see as a trend emerging more in 2017, 18. There's a lot of great stuff going on there. Yep. I think that the, the thing about the UK that has been a bit uh, disappointing is that uh, we're broadly down uh, 33% uh, from the 2015 numbers. 
And most people in the community attribute that both to Brexit or the general geopolitical uncertainty that's going on. Uh, you know, we quite often get asked, well, is that a big deal? Uh, well, I'd pay attention to it uh, when there's uncertainty and, and it's easier for investors to say no. Uh, 50% of our venture capital investment into the UK is foreign. Uh, a big portion of that is European or American. And, and so I think that you can understand that. I think the good news is Q3 immediately following Brexit, we had a bumper round to pretty much what we did in 2015. Um, a, a lot of great deals happening, all in the momentum space. And, and I think that's probably one of the best signals that, you, you know, look, as we sit here at the beginning of 2017, Brexit in the context of fintech is priced into the market. Foreign venture capitalists have recognized that passporting isn't critical to most fintechs, although those, you know, in the, the remittance or the FX or payment space, and, and, and things are just moving along. So we're, you know, we're cautious, cautiously optimistic about 2017. Yeah, it feels like a big um, a big headline of the like you say the the thirty three percent dip, um, but arguably we should have and are expecting this, aren't we? You know, with all of the sort of uncertainty over uh, what Brexit actually means, I guess this is a, a, a sort of a message about how we bring confidence back into the market, isn't it? It's a it's a it's a huge question about that, and and uh, you, you know Chris Willard at the FCA used the word optics, which I've adopted. I think that's a great a great word. Uh, immediately following Brexit, which is when the the highest level of disruption or volatility happened in in, in most markets, I mean in the currency market, not just fintech. I think the perception was that losing passporting or access to the single market for fintechs, what, what, what was going to be terrible, it was going to be some um, you know, commercially impaired consequence as a result of it. And, and that's just not the case for the most part. Uh, I don't think that anyone would disagree that there are profound implications on uh, you know, passporting for large institutions. Everybody speaks about euro clearing, but I think it goes much deeper than that. You know, I think we have something like 5,000 foreign banks registered with branches here, uh, many of them reliant on, on passporting. But as you well know, um, institutions are very good at sorting out uh, how they deal with uh, regulatory issues or legislative issues like this. So whilst the feedback has been from institutions, boy, this is OPEX or, you know, this is amount of money we didn't think we'd have to spend. Uh, everybody's focused on, on, you know, doing what they need to do to protect their customers, their shareholders and their staff. So I, I think the, the, from our perspective, the most important thing uh, in this for the community is, you know, look, um, calm down. Let's, let, let, let's move forward in two, 2017. We've had a, you know, really good funding round already in excess of a hundred million and tra transfer wise. You, you know, again, we don't attract the most capital here. We still maintained our third position uh, in, in the world, even though we're 33% down. But what we do have and we're recognized as having is one of the best productive private partner ecosystems with, you know, governments, regulators, fintechs and institutions. So we feel in the short term, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of productive stuff that can get done. Great. Well, like you say, it's a uh, it's something definitely we need to be keeping an eye on, but uh, don't push the panic button just yet. I, I guess is the the message. Um, while we've got you, actually, Lawrence, there's a you've got your Innovate Finance Global Summit's coming up on April 10th and 11th in London. So looks like an amazing event. What's the what's the idea about this year's event? Uh, we're hoping to serve the membership, get to the bottom of some of the fintech trending topics in 2017, which are around things like regtech. Uh, sandboxes, both industry and regulatory sandboxes, AI, which you know was the biggest trending topic coming into Davos uh, this year, it was just huge. 
um, an identity, uh, really, in the context particularly of, I would say, not just financial services, but in, in the context of governance and sovereigns and the role I, identity and digital identity has to play, you know, broadly in the economy. That and the other 15, you know, fintech verticals we cover, lots of uh, showcases and second stage for a lot of our startup members. And, and then on the second day, uh, we've basically got, uh, uh, you know, a pitch contest. So we've got all sorts of members coming in, a fantastic judging, pe- uh, you know, panel lined up uh, and it's demo day. So, um, yeah, we're pretty excited about it and always excited because you guys are there as well and covering it. So, uh, you know, it should be pretty cool. Yeah, well, it, it looks like a really good event. So we're, uh, we're definitely looking forward to that one. But uh, Lawrence Winsmeyer, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, hey thanks, David. Okay, so um, I think Lawrence mentioned the uh, Innovate Finance Global Summit, which is on the uh, April the 10th and 11th in London. Uh, we'll be recording a podcast there. Uh, Fintech Insider listeners, you'll get a 30% discount if you register for tickets using the discount code Fintech Insider. So remember, Fintech Insider is your key to 30% off if you want to go to the Innovate Finance Global Summit. Next story up is a story in Cointelegraph where Switzerland are set to ease finance regulations and to support the blockchain innovation, which is you know kind of a macro trend. We're also seeing in the news this week that Japan is set to make Bitcoin somewhat of a legal currency. Uh, there are now these jurisdictions that are gradually trying to make Bitcoin real. And I don't want to say I told you so, but this was in my 2017 predictions that we would start to see. I mean, uh, Dan, do you have any thoughts here around uh, you know what jurisdictions are coming round to blockchain and especially Bitcoin on, on this front? Yeah, I, I think it'll continue to be the smaller ones, quite honestly. It's more manageable, um, easier to contain if it explodes. I think you know the larger countries will wait on the sidelines for a while and see how this goes. And so your prediction for 2017 may be right, but I still think it'll be limited to smaller countries. Ask if anything to add there. It draws parallels to cannabis deregulation for me. That's mm-hmm. all I think about. I think about <laughs> Washington. I think about Denver just becoming the guinea pigs for it first, mm-hmm. taking in the benefits um, and then letting it just spread more, more more widely. So I think it's a good move from Switzerland, absolutely. I think it's interesting, you know, they, they've been sort of positioning themselves as a, as a bit of a leader from a blockchain perspective for quite some time, haven't they? But actually moving to Bitcoin is kind of a, a, a particularly interesting step, I think, in, in Switzerland themselves, who are usually pretty conservative with this type of stuff. So uh, definitely want to watch. Yeah, and I think it's broader than just blockchain, right? So they're doing it for all of fintech. They're trying to uh, generally move the barrier down for fintech, um, but they see blockchain as being um, one of the areas that's going to develop new business models. And actually, I think that's a really interesting area because fintech and business models, like, you know, peer-to-peer lending was a new business model. That's why it worked. I think Square, when they came around and they were disrupting payments, they were going after a smaller merchant. That was a new business model. And actually, you could argue that payments and lending have by far been the most successful in fintech. So what are the new business models that that could be be out there? I mean, have you guys seen anything, heard of anything? Yeah, when you speak about blockchain and distributed ledger, the number of people using that as an underlying driver to new fintechnologies, especially in logistics, in our accelerator program, we probably saw three or four different people pitch that. And I think you'll see that blockchain distributed ledger technology pick up much quicker. So to my point about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, I think will follow. I think distributed ledger and blockchain is a real technology now being implemented. I'm going long on, on social media. I don't know where social media sits on the hype cycle. It must be well well and truly gone. But I'm feeling a resurgence. I'm, I'm saying that from a point of 
talking to a few level 39 entrepreneurs who are working very much on the social media platform delivery side of things when it comes to um, digital banking. Names can't be said right now because they're still beta, but I'm, I'm going along with that. That felt really insider. That was like, Psst, I've got a secret. I wonder how much I can say without saying the name, but a, man, a bank account which is driven by social media, it's driven by people meeting each other on an app, seeing each other's faces on the map, meeting each other, giving each other money. Wow. It's that sounds that sounds good, and I, and I like the yeah. idea of this. You know, the i sort of invisible banking. You know, this stuff kind of moves further and further back into the the uh, you know the the sort of back scenes of uh, of day to day life, and actually doing it via social. You know, there are some pretty. Uh, smart companies out there looking, people like PayKey is an example, who do uh, payments through um, sort of custom keyboards. So it doesn't matter what you're doing, it's the context to the conversation you're having with an individual that matters. And then you can actually start sending money or seeing balances. And actually, it's a it's a sensible ex- uh, extension, really, of, of kind of robo, right? You know, at the point where anything... Any chatbot can be invoked anywhere through a, um, you know, a, a particular word then it really sort of feels nice, doesn't it? Speaking of chat, it's like you knew what the next story was, David. It really is. Um, There's a story here in Reuters. Uh, WeChat users sent a massive 46 billion digital red packets over the Lunar New Year. And you spoke to James Lloyd, who's the uh, Asia-Pacific fintech leader at EY. I did. I think the the thing probably to to say before we go to to James on this one is, the scary number is is definitely a, a very, very big, scary one in itself. The 46 billion is just quite terrifying in terms of sort of seeing it. But this was a 43% increase from the previous year in terms of doing it as well. So, you know, this has taken off like nobody's business. And WeChat are just absolutely dominating this space over there. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit more from James. Well, I, I use you as my point of reference for most of the statistics for Hong Kong, quite frankly. So like the red envelope statistics that were yeah. coming through were just phenomenal. You know, in in seconds, we're seeing hundreds of millions of uh, oh, sure. just like transferring, which is just insane. Yeah. So, I mean, just to, to put that in context, I mean, in the six day Chinese New Year holiday that just passed last week, there were 46 billion transactions on WeChat alone. So that's 46 billion red packets, which are the kind of traditional gift that you would of some monetary value, uh, 46 billion. So, I mean, to put that in context, I often compare it to PayPal and say, you know, this is an order of magnitude, obviously greater than PayPal did globally, but it's a little bit of an unfair comparison because the, the manner in which they've constructed this red packet, um, you know, product is such that it, it, it lends itself to, I mean, that's why it's so smart. It lends itself to this virality. You can send 30 at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, the really interesting part about that, and that's WeChat, um, who have really taken the lead on this red packets promotion. The really interesting thing for me is how a messaging service through this type of promotion, through this type of kind of business model innovation has enabled or encouraged so many people to associate their payment credentials. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, you know, if WhatsApp or Facebook come to you and, and say, Hey, can you uh, attach your credit card or bank account? Probably you'd be thinking, why, firstly, and, and is this something I want to do? But if you've suddenly got this kind of viral promotion, uh, and Red Packets was only launched four years ago, right? But, you know, the, the speed of adoption has been such that this messaging platform has become, you know, a financial services instrument, right? I mean, an interesting stat, which I think is kind of underappreciated is, and according to the um, People's Bank of China, so the central bank in China, more transactions now occur by volume through non-banks than through banks. 
So the volume is about you know 54% of all transactions now run through non-banks. Now the value, of course, is still all with the banks. It's like 96% or something. So what does that mean? Well, microtransactions, you and me uh, exchanging money or red packets or whatever else through WeChat, through Alipay predominantly. But I mean, that's where the customers are. So you know, as a consequence, if the customers are spending their time on messaging apps, well, then increasingly the banks in China have begun to, of course, integrate with WeChat. So if I want to now check my balance with any of the big China banks, I can do it through through WeChat. Ultimately, I'll be able to move money in and out of my account. Well, I, I can now, of course, but ultimately I'll be able to do more and more financial services, perhaps manufactured by banks in the background, but ultimately it'll be through the WeChat interface because that becomes the operating system. Brilliant. Well, thanks for joining us, James. Thank you very much, James. And be sure to listen out for David's full interview with James uh, later in the month. Uh, folks, any thoughts here? I mean, we've talked about China on this show a number of times, and the, the, you know, the scale there is massive. But you look at it compared to a market like India, and you know, China is really, really grasping mobile payments in a way that is just blazing a trail. Any thoughts? It's technology first, finance second. That's the key. That's the game. It's it's just a huge market with huge potential, and and uh, approaching it from a tech-led perspective is is why we're seeing such absolutely ginormous numbers mm-hmm. that are just mind-boggling. And uh, I've got a few friends from Hong Kong, from China, and it's safe to say I don't even understand the the human concept of giving that occurs during that part of the year. It's such a giving-based society, so mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me at all. The only comment I'd make on it, which is interesting, being U.S.-based, the U.S. is so bound by tradition regulations. Markets that are emerging like that can just skip generationally how they do things. And, and the, the ability to disrupt is arguably so much easier because you don't have uh, some of the constraints. And I think you'll continue to see growing innovation like that coming out of China. It's, yeah. it's phenomenal, isn't it? I mean, the next story up was one in TechNode about how the Chinese mobile payments are quietly conquering the world. And I'd encourage you to check this out on TechNode. Some of the stats in here are just unbelievable. So the uh, the volumes of Chinese uh, currency that was sent via mobile payments in 2015 was around 1.4 trillion US dollars and uh, is expected to reach 3.2 trillion US dollars in the next year, in 2017. I mean, that is huge. Compared to a meager 8.7 billion in 2015 in the US, I mean, that is several orders of magnitude larger. It's it's just huge. Um, and I guess, you know, it speaks to where you've got existing infrastructure where people can pay via credit card, people can kind of have banks that sort of work. Whereas in markets where, you know, most of the population don't really have that, that's where mobile payments have really taken off. But, um, you know, what do you guys think here? Is there something more likely to see growth in developed markets here, or is it is it just a is it really a developing markets only story? Well, I think eventually you'll see it in developed markets. I just think the the tip of the spear is going to be in the developing markets because you, you're not replacing legacy infrastructure and process. It's just easier to disrupt. But I, I think you will see that shift. I, ironically, I think you know we're talking about the U.S. again. I think the U.S. will be a laggard in adoption in many of these global shifts. But uh, that's just the way it's going to be. I think it's in, you know we've seen people like Venmo obviously spot, uh, pop up in the, the sure. states and do incredibly well, but it's to your point, it's almost on the side of the regulation space, and arguably you wouldn't see that type of adoption if it was from a, a mainstream banking organisation, would you? It's uh, you know very similar to the the WeChat piece. It's it's become almost a a way of doing it for a generation of people 
that made it sound like a Pepsi advert, didn't it? I didn't mean yeah, it quite but, like that. But but, but it's interesting. The, the underlying consumer needs are the same of consumers in the U.S., but the technology isn't there. A really stupid example coming over here, um, my Apple Pay, everyone here is touchless, right? In the States, not even remotely close. Even the credit cards that I'm using won't take Apple Pay into the system for me to be touchless here in the UK. It's crazy. So America is, is going to lag on that. How, how much, and um, maybe we're going to go slightly off on a tangent here, but it's kind of what I do, so... Bear, bear with me here. So how long do you think before we start to see some of the American companies actually focusing outside of America? So to your point, Apple Pay in America is actually very low usage. Uh, there isn't the, really the infrastructure from a POS perspective to really sort of maximize the potential. So, you know, would arguably Apple be better off launching these products in the UK or kind of... Uh, even into into China in terms of sort of doing it, just because the response will be a lot better. Uh, there's certainly that argument to be made. I think why people keep getting trapped in launching in the U.S. is the market is massive, right? You look at the size of the transaction volume, but but I do think there's an argument to be made to to, to innovate, disrupt in other places, mm. then bring it forward, um, and, and it will happen. I'm not saying it won't happen. I just think the U.S. will be the the slower ones, and that that could be true for any developed. Uh, country where the disruption is harder to make happen, yeah. but eventually consumers will want that convenience for the same reason consumers in other parts of the world do. Yeah, but there's just no way to test within individual states, is there? To do like uh, to have one state as the test bed, bring that back to cannabis again, yeah. where you can have one state as a test bed. Uh, man, I'm sensing a theme here, dude. I don't know there's, why he uh, keeps coming. <laughs> if he brings it up one more time, like I think he uh, like this is an it's going to it's gonna turn into an intervention. I think. So. <laughs> So we've got um, a theme developing here in our news stories this week. Um, we've got one here in Forbes, Three Reasons Fintech is Failing, which is a fantastic headline. Um, is Fintech failing, David? Or, you know, what's, what's the gist of this story? Um, our, you know, lovely clickbaity title. And, uh, you know, there's a reason this has got something like 130,000 views now in a very, very short period of time with a, a title like that. But uh, so the, the main sort of thrust of this really is that uh, they feel that there is a, a fundamental strategic contradiction between tech and finance, um, which feels to me like it's mi a misalignment of what they're saying with regards to people's objectives or what they're doing. Yeah. And the second reason they're talking about is market realities encourage short-term thinking, which again, I think a lot of us can kind of relate to in terms of what we've seen probably both within the uh, the, the, the banking organizations and actually um, arguably from a VC community in terms of where, where we're going with this as well. Uh, and the third reason they were saying is that the incumbents in the market are powerful and resistant to change. Powerful. Which I don't think anybody can argue with either. You know, the, yeah. the big banks still have all of the money and all of the customers in, in reality. So I don't think there's anything to really sort of say I disagree with in here. Except the headline. Unfortunately, yeah, and other than the headline, which, which basically makes it out like fintech is missing out on these things. And I think if you talk to any fintech company, I don't think they, for one second, disagree with any of these statements that are actually being made in here. Yeah. But they're kind of um, chipping away in terms of different areas of, of doing it to either help the big organizations address some of these things in terms of what they're doing. So, you know, actually understanding the difference between what agile means in, in principle and what it means in practice or actually how you can adopt some of these new technologies without uh, terrifying everybody in, in what they're doing. So I kind of think um, it's interesting title, but not really interesting content. It's, it's pointing. I, I think the content, you know, like some of the stuff in there is, is like stuff that you should probably know. But it's at the same time like this, there's a fundamental contradiction between tech and finance. If there was a word at the end of that sentence, culturally, like totally, the tech culture of like 
build and iterate and communicate and the engineer is king is very different to the finance of like, I've never met an engineer, here are all my BAs, let's look at all the spreadsheets. Now, you're going to need spreadsheets in finance, but there's probably a good balance in there. You know, this this second point about market realities do encourage short-term thinking. Yeah, totally they do. I mean, the way um, banks are incentivized and way middle-level executives are incentivized is to, you know, up existing products in the short term. If they're incentivized to introduce new products and over a five-year period, that that might be a little bit different. And lastly, you know, like incumbents are powerful and resistant to change. Yeah, they are, but I, I think they want change. Like on every level, you know, people do want to serve customers better in banks. I mean, we had Frankie Woodhead on a couple of weeks ago and he was very much of that view that banks can and should. And um, I'm sure there'll be more. I mean, Asif, do you think it's just a case that uh, the incumbents are too powerful or, you know, has FinTech got a role here? I, I think about the regulatory sandbox and I think when you look at tech as it stands and you look at finance as it stands, you're trying to shove a square peg into a round hole. That's, of course, why you're going to end up with articles like this. Fintech is failing. If you try and shove a square peg through a round hole, things do fail. And when I think about the regulatory sandbox and I think about the way they're trying to learn, they're trying to make provisions for and understand new types of fintech businesses which don't fit into pre-existing categories, then absolutely no Fintech's not failing. Obviously, in the U.S., we don't have a regulatory sandbox um, concept, so we could call it a regulatory blast wall, which means the big companies, what they want to do, they want these young startups to innovate, deal with all the regulatory hurdles, and if it blows up, they got this nice blast wall between them and inside the inside the. So the market will always find a way to innovate. And um, Bank of America is headquartered in Charlotte. Five years ago, we talked about helping young fintech startups. The immediate reaction was. So we're going to help mentor them, help fund them so they can disrupt and blow up our business model. But they very quickly got past that, realizing we were talking this morning, this this disruption is happening. This tidal wave is going to happen with or without them. They're much better off being close to it and connected to it. So that third point in the article, in particular, I disagree with. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely the case. I think the more people have... Um, engaged with the the market and the changing mentality and really play through the scenarios of where it's going to go, the more they realize the time to get involved is, is now. You know, that sort of collaboration approach is almost a, um, an eventuality now. You know, they, it, they have to do it. There's no option really, which is pretty interesting, isn't it? You know, it's, we it's sort of, um, people have cynically said that fintech is like outsourced R&D, but actually, non-cynically, is a bank a bad exit for a lot of fintechs? And and also, you know, if you're a supplier to a bank, is that a bad contract for you to have? I don't know that it is. I think that's probably a good result for a lot. It's not the right answer for everybody. Maybe it's not the right answer for all of them, but I think it's pretty interesting nonetheless. Next story up, uh, one, speaking of the US, um, there's one here from uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, saying there are several fintech startups that want to save one key page of Dodd-Frank. So for the uninitiated, of course, Dodd-Frank being the uh, uh, kind of large bit of regulation in the US that it was going to change how um, finance worked. It was going to look at everything from interchange caps to all kinds of little bits and pieces of, of how the, the US financial industry was going to work. And of course, uh, Donald Trump uh, said last week his administration was going to do a big number on the Dodd-Frank financial overhaul and dismantle it. Um, and, and actually, you know, what's really interesting is the fintech startups have kind of put their hand up and said, um, we, we don't like that. You know, so there were some good things in Dodd-Frank. Regulation isn't all bad. Um, particularly section uh, 1033, because 
there's a bit of consumer protection in there. It basically made sure that uh, consumer data would have to be protected and any financial services organization, fintech, large bank, would be on the hook to make sure that they were protecting that data and that the consumer could see what data was held and that they could take that data back and delete it, a bit like GDPR in Europe, the General Data Protection Regulation. So these sorts of things, um, you know, a really interesting developments. I mean, Dan, do you think there's anything there? Is Dodd-Frank just going to get waved away like a magic wand or is it sticking? Yeah, the problem is there's so much unknown in the US right now when you talk to anyone. And if anyone can truly predict what's going to happen, um, they they should uh, they should be making millions of dollars because they're smarter than me. It, it's an, it might be the most unpredictable time in the, in the regulatory marketplaces of my lifetime. So we'll have to see where that all nets out. I do think consumers in the U.S. though understand the value of their data, and they want access to their data, right? Um, once they understand things like this are going to get repealed, I think you'll you'll see U.S. consumers be very upset about it. Right now, to be honest, U.S. consumers don't understand this isn't Dodd Frank, mm-hmm. but if it becomes an issue and it's advocated in the right way, I, I think you'll see activism around it. The, the one other key point on that, not only for the consumers but for young startups. Uncertainty is terrible for investors. And so where this is really going to hurt is not whether there's a business model and consumers to be had, but but investors are going to be wary to put money in if they don't know where regulation is heading. And that's a bad thing. Uh, well, we know a little about uncertainty after Brexit over here. It's, it's just generally not a good thing. Indeed. I wonder if there is a general rule of thumb to be applied around Trump's attitude towards helping business. Do you think you can draw a line then to talk about how he might act with regards to Dodd-Frank? Is it big business or is it startups as well, like whose interests are being protected? So there's uh, a lot of executives uh, that are former Goldman that are now, and, and because Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan is in this CEO council that um, that Trump keeps. So so who knows where that one's going to go? Because, I mean, Dodd-Frank was sort of a bit of a, here's the legislation that's going to whack the banks over the heads after the financial crisis type feel to it. Um, and you can see why the banks wanted to get rid of it. But actually now sitting here in 2017, the, the horse has bolted. Like a lot of um, folks I've talked to have said, the banks and many people in the industry are so far down the line with this thing that actually reversing it's probably going to cost as much, if not more, than trying to uh, kind of continue implementing the thing. So maybe business doesn't like it. So I think you've definitely got to start questioning the sort of strategic value there of the the regulator and the government if they can at the sort of the the ninth hour on this one sort of back out. Really, it would uh, like you say there's millions of dollars been spent getting to the point where you can you know achieve this and to unpick it now seems rather unwise indeed i spoke to um anna herrera a journalist at reuters in new york about this as well i'm joined today by anna herrera from reuters anna good to have you with us hi thank you for having me Welcome back to the show. So, Anna, um, you have no doubt seen that uh, Donald Trump has been uh, making some pronouncements about the Dodd-Frank regulation recently. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on here? Yes. So he's kind of signaled that in his administration that they want to roll back um, Dodd-Frank. So there was an executive order, I think, last week um, that sort of started some of the process, but obviously it has to go through because it's, it's legislation, it can't, it can't be changed dramatically just through an executive order. So it's going to take some time, but I think it's kind of unequivocal now that something's going to happen there and that legislation that was put in place after the financial crisis might be at least scaled down. That's pretty interesting. No, because it is legislation, of course, it has to pass both houses of Congress. Uh, so getting it repealed and, and gotten rid of entirely seems unlikely. But this executive order certainly puts pressure on changing Dodd-Frank. Have you heard of any areas specifically that are going to be changed or is it? Uh, 
So there's talk about the Volcker rule. That's one of the things that um, that might change, which is essentially the fact that banks just separated proprietary trading from the rest or, mm -hmm. or um, eliminated. So that so that was kind of in order to make sure that banks are not kind of gambling with deposits from their, from their customers, essentially, or that they're kind of trading perhaps against what they're advising their clients to do. That was kind of the intent around it. So that's something that's likely to go because kind of banks were strongly at the time. And then other things that might kind of um, gear stuff that emerged after the crisis is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which the Republicans don't like very much. And people have been saying that it's something that might, it's, it's an organ that might disappear or they might kind of take some powers away from it. So Anna, has there been anything about fintech specifically um, that has been mentioned within this that might go out, go in? So there's not, not been something mentioned specifically, but there was a story about what fintech firms are concerned, which is a, a rule in Dodd-Frank that would sort of allow or force banks to give access to other to, to consumers of their data. So it's sort of open banking kind of um, rule and uh, fintech firms are concerned that that might go away because obviously as, as in the UK, it's a big deal for fintech firms if, if they can start accessing um, their clients' data in tech form. Yeah, we've seen open banking in the UK and, and after PSD2 being you know, really huge. And if, if that's probably taken out of the Dodd-Frank, uh, you can see the banks being you know, quite happy with that. Uh, but at the same time, you can see fintechs not being very happy at all. Uh, interesting times. Yes, definitely. You never know what's going to happen. Every day is a new day here. <laughs> Every day is an adventure in fintech land as well. Anna, thanks once again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Anna. Um, so next story up with David. Uh, there's one here in the Business Insider about 19 laptops containing customer information have been stolen from fintech company GoCardless. Yeah, there's there's not a, a really a, a great deal of information on this one, to be honest with you. It, it, the article, um, this is from Oscar Williams Group over at Business Insider, um, doesn't really sort of make out whether this was a specific targeted thing in order to, to gain access to data. Um, or whether this was just somebody smashing a window and stealing 19 laptops to, you know, go and sell on eBay. Um, and I'm guessing they probably don't know this, this idea, but unfortunately net result is 19 laptops stolen from their office that contain personal information of customers, which kind of makes you wonder why those things were being stored on a laptops and, and, and B just being left unlocked in, uh, in, in offices. So, you know, I think this one potentially is a kind of a setup of, um, you know, startups really need to start being you know, really held to the same level of uh, accountability here that the banking organizations would be. I'm sure, uh, you know, from my experience in banking and yours, Simon, that uh, we would be uh, in quite a lot of trouble at that point if that was actually occurring. So I think um, topping up the security in terms of where we're going, especially seeing as these guys have got a pretty sizable uh, customer base here in terms of actually where they're going. So sad story, but, uh, you know, maybe start thinking about some locks. It's all fun and games until 19 laptops get stolen. And I think, you know, we, we did live in this um, kind of fun world in which there weren't many breaches at fintechs because probably because there weren't that many customers. But now they're going to get bigger and bigger and they're going to become targets. I mean, I can't think of a single one before this. I guess the biggest one, the, the, I think the thing about this one is with it being physical crime, you can't tell whether it's just somebody, like say, smashing in and stealing stuff or, or not. But, uh, you know, N26 recently in terms of the hack that those guys had, that was very very obviously targeting those guys to to kind of 
Um, you know, they've made some pretty bold statements in the media about, uh, you know, we're not like those old incumbent organizations, we're smarter, we're better, which is just like, come and get some if you think you're hard enough to kind of hackers. Uh, you know, obviously everything that happened with Lloyd's over the last couple of weeks with uh, the attacks that they've had, the ransoms that have been placed on those guys. Uh, and earlier this year, we had Tesco Bank, which was very heavily kind of attacked in terms of kind of what they're doing. So I kind of think this is something from a digital perspective, you know, cybersecurity is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think for startups, we just need to kind of keep remembering that physical security is as probably more important, if uh, if not equally as important as cybersecurity. The the one interesting thing is you talk, and we'll talk about this next on on fintech innovation. So much of it is happening in the biometric security space now. What happens when it's not passwords or stolen information? What happens when it's iris prints, right, or facial recognition? This this is going to change quite rapidly in the next five or ten years, and you can't change your iris print once it's stolen. It's stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out. So the way the devices handle that is the device turns it into a different number every time and sends that rotating number. So it's not actually it's not sending your thumbprint. It's not sending your eye it's sending something else but there are a lot of uh, kind of biometrics out there that you know, is genuinely taking the pattern of biometrics from you and if that's stolen you can never get it back you know it's, it's a very good point um next story up the changing the uh, changing the mood a little bit five crazy startup ideas in fintech right now and some of these are just really really fun um, a robo advisor for your car would you like one sir while you're driving your sports car around the streets of monaco who wants to only concentrate on the road uh why not interact with your own ai personal assistant and make some important investment decisions while you try and avoid crashing into whatever shop it is so there's a, a poland-based financial software firm called comarch and they've created myra an in-car uh, investment assistant targeted at wealthy bank customers so it's it's kind of a fun article this one at news uh, e financial careers um some of the others here about eye scanning technology for your bank account the fitbit of personal finance management twitter access for traders and analysis and aml software to alleviate the burden uh, on overwork compliance they get less crazy as they go along if i'm honest um you know sort of eye scanning i could get fitbit i get i mean which of these do you think is the most important dan which would you say you know has the most real need right now yeah well i was at this conference this is the, the finnovate london conference part of the reason that i was here so i heard these people pitch uh live i also think the best of show is also a little bit of who has the, the brightest colored shirts and brightest colored shoes on. So these were, of these top five, I've only voted for two of these five to give you order of magnitude. Um, I, I think there's a couple general themes that come out of it. There's a lot of biometrics. There's a lot of informatics and big data. There's a lot of point of purchase instantaneous credit applications. Um, but I think you know, if you look at the 60-ish companies that pitched, um, I think there, there were some really interesting ideas. And there are also a couple of also RANs that are in there. This one here around um, AML software to alleviate the burden of overworked compliance teams, I think, is the big one. Like if you're sitting in a bank right now, the KYC AML stuff, that's where fines come from. That's where pain comes from. And actually, it surprises me that um, banks aren't obsessed with automating that. Like I, I can see that they want to. But maybe it's just that they don't know about you know, Blue Prism and WorkFusion and all of those vendors out there that do that stuff. Genuinely, I don't think that one sounds crazy at all. That one sounds that sounds like a kind of an automated process that actually will help people dramatically. And like, if I'm in a bank, I'm like running up and down trying to get this thing in because mm. it's that's the thing that stops the fines. That's the thing that stops the crimes. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> it that rhymes. Works. It must work. The, yeah. the other interesting point on that: a lot of the big banks um, don't need this. They have huge compliance departments. They can deal with it. But one of our partners was talking about the fact that where they get dinged is they have incoming transactions and money coming from all these community banks and all these different endpoint sources. And that causes them pain points. And they want to be able to push and dictate downstream. 
better compliance at the community banks and smaller institutions. Yeah. So the one that probably stands out as the one that I don't really get why it's a thing is the Twitter access for trades and an- traders and analysts. Was there any better explanation of that actually at Finnovate? Because it sort of seems like uh, everybody's carrying a mobile phone around with them. Surely that seems like a, an obvious answer to that. It, it, it's an informatics and, and big data play, which is can you spot trends and patterns by aggregating at um, a macro level that you wouldn't see on in the individual right. level based on who you follow? So it's like... Is this trending on Twitter? Therefore, yeah. And can you predict it before somebody else notices it? Yeah, there's um, there's a company in the Barclays Accelerator a couple of years ago, and Market IQ, and these guys would um, tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. So they'd look at Twitter, and then they'd look at all kinds of other data feeds as well, and they'd uh, kind of give you a degree of confidence. So we are seven over nine confident that over the next two weeks, um, Expedia shares are going to go up by a magnitude of ten uh, percent. That is something that as a trader, you can go, huh, the data says that that's likely to happen. And actually from a machine learning perspective, like tweaking those algorithms and having the best algorithms uh, is really, really important. And there was something um, I saw, I can't remember the the news journal, but it was basically saying that uh, Goldman are looking to get rid of traders and start hiring more people that are really strong in machine learning for precisely that reason. Um, maybe it's flavor of the week. You know, I, I still think you're going to need somebody who knows what they're doing to, to teach the skills to the machine learning algos. But actually, that's a really interesting point. Or you can just follow Donald Trump on Twitter. He apparently tweets about companies and affects their market valuations. And it does move markets. And, and, he, and he knows the future too, right, as well. So uh, We do actually live in Back to the Future too. Um, so uh, the last one, we should probably talk a little bit about Finnovate. Um, the winners have been announced from the best in show. So unless you've been living under a rock, um, you'll be aware that uh, Finnovate 2017 happened in Europe here in London. Uh, there's some really great companies on show. Finnovate happens every year around this time. Great opportunity to see kind of a mix of what's happening in fintech. Uh, the winners were, of course, uh, Backbase, CreaLogix, Dorsum, eToro, Memento, SailMove, and Tink. Uh, congratulations to all of you guys. Um, Dan, you were there. Um, any of those stand out for you? Um, what, what are your thoughts on the show as well? Yeah, I, I think the show, there were for 60 people pitching, a number of kind of four or five reoccurring themes. Um, the, the voice integration Probably half the companies had an Alexis unit there, and we're talking about voice integration, kind of gimmicky, but you know that that's coming forward. Um, and then I think some I mentioned also the the point of purchase instant credit, which I think you're going to see just a ton of that idea that I can um, bypass the credit cards and get instantaneous credit in a score uh, in a store. And then I think uh, we were talking about social earlier. I think the aggregation of, of social. Um, listening for people for effective on how, how worthy are they credit wise and a p2p platform but i think you'll see that aggregation of social continue to happen so i think those are the themes that i saw that's quite a brave uh, brave stance for people doing live demos with alexa were there uh, were there any car crashes in there or there, were one or, there were one or two but i'll, yeah. I'll keep them nameless <laughs> there was a flying drone at one point there was all sorts of interesting wow. things going on Awesome. Well, congratulations to everybody who uh, who won. Anyway, it's uh, it's always good to see some uh, regulars that are changing out what they're doing a little bit, and also uh, some new companies coming through. I think everybody who we've talked to who'd seen Tink have definitely kind of said it's a, a great thing coming through. Yeah. 
a lot to look out for. And, uh, you know, if you guys uh, listening are interested, I'm sure you can check out uh, the Finnovate website and uh, and learn more. So that was all the stories we had for this week. We, we rattled through them. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, if you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, it helps people discover our podcast. And, yeah, if you've enjoyed this one, they should be discovering it, right? To learn more about the team behind Fintech Insider, visit our website at 11fs.co.uk. And remember, if you'd like to go to the Innovate Finance Global Summit, Fintech Insider listeners get a 30% discount if they register for tickets using the discount code Fintech Insider. That's all for now.